Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You probably use an RSS feed. In fact, if you got this episode as a podcast, you definitely used an RSS feed. The story of RSS is simple and yet surprisingly combative. In fact, RSS's success may hinge on one man's idealistic dedication to his principles. People will tell you that RSS stands for really simple syndication, though it really doesn't. That's one of the charms of the story of RSS. Throughout its formative years, nobody could agree on much, and the name is still a matter of debate to this day. If you've heard of RSS at all, it was most likely in connection with podcasts. Podcasts are delivered through RSS feeds to the apps and platforms where you listen to them. Behind every Apple podcast, Google podcast, Audible podcast, even most Spotify podcasts, there's a simple RSS feed. You might also use RSS to read headlines. If you use Feedly or Newsblur or InnoReader or something like that, you're using RSS. But where did it come from? I'm Tom Merritt. Be prepared for a tale of idealism, abandonment, betrayal, and perseverance. If you've ever thought, why are people making this so complicated? If you've ever wondered, what would it be like to be that person who just shut everyone up with an action that, right or wrong, would stand the test of time? Get ready to know a little more about RSS. In the earliest days, if you wanted to know if a website had been updated, you had to visit it. As websites became more common, that quickly became a chore. So people experimented with ways to let you know when a website had been updated without you having to go visit it. One of the earliest attempts at this was called the Meta Content Framework, or MCF. It was developed in 1995 in Apple's Advanced Technology Group. Ramanathan V. Guha was part of that group, and a few years later, he moved over to browser maker Netscape, where he and a guy named Dan Libby kept brainstorming on just those sorts of ideas. Guha particularly liked developing what are called resource description frameworks, or RDFs. You don't really need to know what these are exactly. They're similar to the MCF that he worked on at Apple, and Suffice to say, they were complex ways to show all kinds of things about web pages without having to visit them. Some, as you will soon find out, thought 
maybe they were too complex. But Netscape's team of Guha, Libby, and friends was not alone in working on this sort of thing. And early on, they weren't the most likely to succeed. The Information and Content Exchange Standard, or ICE, was proposed in January 1998 by Firefly Networks, which was an early web community company, and Vignette, a web publishing toolmaker. They got some big names to back ICE, too. Microsoft, Adobe, Sun, CNET, National Semiconductor, Tribune Media Services, Ziff Davis, and Reuters were all among the ICE authoring group. But it wasn't open source. In those days, respectable tech companies like those I just named might still have a little skeptical eye on open source code. How are you going to make money on that? Who'd keep working on it if they weren't paid to? So the members of the ICE authoring group paid people to develop it. And in the end, uh, that meant it developed slower than competing standards. And so ICE failed. Interestingly, ICE's failure caused Microsoft to get a little more open earlier than you might have expected. In 1997, Microsoft and a company called Pointcast created the Channel Definition Format, or CDF. They released it on March 8th, 1997, and in order not to fall under the death-by-slow development that uh, seemed to plague ICE, they submitted CDF as a standard to the W3C the next day, March 9th, 1997. It was adopted quickly. In fact, its success planted the seed of its successor. Enter Dave Weiner. Dave Weiner had founded a software company back in 1988, been around the scene for a long time. He founded Userland. Userland did a lot of different software and added support for CDF on April 14th, 1997, just one month after its release. Weiner also began publishing his own weblog, Scripting News, in CDF. But CDF, like ICE, was more complicated than a smaller site like Scripting News needed. So, Weiner, being a developer, on December 27th, 1997, began publishing Scripting News in his own Scripting News feed format, as well as CDF. He basically simplified CDF for his own needs, and then made that available for anyone who wanted to use it to subscribe. Meanwhile... Let's go back to Netscape, where Libby had been working away on his own version of a feed platform, and Netscape was about to make a big launch that would cause his project to surpass them all, including CDF. On July 28, 1998, Netscape launched My Netscape Portal. If you know, you know. This was one of the earliest and biggest web portals, a place that aggregated links from sites around the web. That sounds mundane now, but it was huge at the time. You could add sites you wanted to follow, CNET, ZDNet, whatever you wanted, and see their latest posts all in one place without having to bop around all over the web. Netscape kept the links updated with a set of tools developed by Libby. He had taken a part of an RDF. Remember that RDF? He had taken a part of an RDF parsing system that his old friend Guha had developed for the Netscape 5 browser, ripped it out of there, and turned it into a feed parsing system for my Netscape. He called it Open SPF. The SPF did not stand for any kind of sunscreen. Uh, it was site preview format. 
OpenSPF would let anyone format content that could then be added to my Netscape. It was rich like CDF, open like CDF, but had one advantage over CDF that proved essential. It worked on my Netscape, which suddenly everyone wanted to be on. Netscape provided it for free because that meant the company didn't have to spend time reaching deals for content. You want your content on my Netscape? Well, use OpenSPF. It can be there. That meant there was more content available for my Netscape than was usual on curated pages. The content was free for both the users and Netscape. More content meant more users, and more users meant Netscape could serve more ads. And content providers were willing to create the OpenSPF feeds because they weren't that burdensome to create for a big company, and sites got more visitors who saw their content on my Netscape, clicked on those links, and came to their sites where they could serve them ads. Sound familiar? This arrangement is the one Google still tries to rely on for Google News, except the news publishers have changed their tune. Back then, they were all about bringing visitors to their websites. They were happy that Netscape sent folks their way for free. These days, as the years have passed and revenue has shrunk, they're more about trying to get Google to pay for the privilege of linking to their news. Anyway, back to the rise of Netscape. 1999 was a huge year for RSS. It was about to reach its modern form and become something users of RSS today would recognize by name. On February 1st, 1999, OpenSPF was released as an engineering vision statement so so folks could comment on it and they could improve it. Dave Weiner commented that he would love... Love, love, love to add scripting news to my Netscape, but he didn't have time to learn Netscape's OpenSPF. However, he just happened to have made his own feed format using XML, which was a little more standard than RDF. And he'd, and now I'll quote, be happy to support Netscape and others in writing syndicators of that content flow. No royalty necessary. It would be easy to have a search engine feed off this flow of links and comments. Side note, this is before Google. There are starting to be a bunch of weblogs. Wouldn't it be interesting if we could agree on an XML format between us? I mean, there was a Google, but it wasn't the Google we know now. However, by February 22nd, Scripting News had gone ahead and started publishing an OpenSPF, because, you know, you wanted to be on my Netscape. Feeling like it was a success, Libby changed the name of OpenSPF to refer to the fact that it used RDF and called it RDF-SPF, and released specs for RDF-SPF 0.9 on March 1st. Now, as you have probably already noticed, that's an unwieldy name. So shortly after, he changed it to RDF Site Summary, or RSS for short. Thus begins the first in a parade of meanings for RSS. And the new name took off. Carmen's Headline Viewer came out on April 25th generally considered to be the first RSS desktop aggregator. Weiner at my.userland.com created a web-based aggregator that launched on June 10th. I mean, folks like the idea, obviously. But a lot of RSS enthusiasts thought the RDF was too complex. Dave Weiner among them. Now, Libby hadn't ignored Weiner's earlier offer either. In fact, Libby thought... They really weren't using RDF for any real useful purpose. So he simplified the format, adding some elements from Weiner's scripting news, and 
removing RDF so that it would validate as XML. That was released on July 10th, 1999 as RSS 0.91. That number is going to come in handy. File that away. Some folks write that the name changed to a rich site summary at that point. Weiner wrote at the time, there is no consensus on what RSS stands for, so it's not an acronym. It's a name. He just decided. It's, it's not an acronym. It's ESPN now. It's CBS. It doesn't stand for anything. Later versions of this spec, Weiner wrote, may say it's an acronym, and hopefully this won't break too many applications. Ha ha ha. Anyway, by 1999, RSS is on a roll. Libby is bringing in feedback from the community, creating a workable, usable standard that's reaching heights of popularity beyond just the confines of my Netscape. And like some kind of VH1 behind the music story, as it reaches that height, everything fell apart. Netscape would never release a new version of RSS again. All right, so RSS has a colorful history, and we're going to get back to how that story turns out. But what the heck does it do? That part is actually really simple. Syndication. It's a standard for writing out a description of stuff so that it's easy for software to read that stuff and display it. Basically, you have the channel, or in Atom, it's called the feed, and items, or in Atom, it's called entries. Channel, items, or maybe feed and entries. Two basic things of an RSS feed. RSS 2.0 requires the channel to have three elements. The rest are optional. So to have a proper feed, you need a title for your channel. Uh, You know, what is this channel called to differentiate it from the other channels in your feed reader? A description. Okay, what is this channel going to do? What kind of stuff is it going to give me? And a link to the source of the channel's items. Where, where, Where is this channel coming from? What's their website? So an example would be Daily Tech News Show would be the title. A show about tech news would be the description, and the link would go to dailytechnewsshow.com. There are optional elements of RSS to include in your channel section. So an image, you know, like a logo, publication date, copyright notice, instructions on how long to go between checking for new content, days and times that you might skip checking. That's just the channel. The items, though, are the stuff in the feed. That's the stuff that shows up. Your podcast episodes, your feed items. There are no required elements for an item, which might sound weird, except that it can't be empty. So it has to have at least one thing in it, but that thing can be any of the things. So an item could just have a title or it could just have a link. However, most of the time, an item has a title, a link, and a description. The description can be a summary of the item, or it can be the whole post. A lot of times, websites will just give you all the text of their news story in the RSS post. Sometimes they even deliver links to ads. Other elements of the item include author, category, comments, publication date, and of course, enclosure. So for our Daily Tech News Show example, the title might be episode 5634, AI wins. The description might be Tom and Sarah talk about how AI just won and took over everything. And the link would be a link to the post for that episode. Now, that's just the post, not 
the MP3 file for the podcast episode. The enclosure element lets the item point to a file to be loaded. The most common use for an enclosure tag is to include an audio or video file to be delivered as a podcast. So for Daily Tech News Show, that would be the link to the MP3 file. In the end, an RSS reader or podcast player, which is a form of RSS reader, looks at an RSS feed the way your browser looks at a web page. It sees all the titles, links, descriptions, possible enclosures, and loads them up and displays them for you. And that's how it works. Okay, back to the story. Why is RSS still around if it was abandoned? In the absence of Netscape's influence, two competing camps would arise. Rail Dornfest wanted to add new features to RSS, possibly as modules. That would mean adding some more complex XML, stuff like namespaces, and possibly bringing back RDF. Well, that was anathema to Dave Weiner. Dave Weiner preached the gospel of simplicity. At the time, you could learn HTML by viewing the source code of a web page. We should have the same thing for RSS, said Weiner. On August 14th, 2000, the RSS 1.0 mailing list became the battleground for the war of words between these two camps. Dornfest Group started something called the RSS Dev Working Group. It included RDF expert Guha. Remember him? He's still kicking around here, still doing his RDF thing. It also uh, notably included future Reddit co-founder Aaron Swartz. They added back support for RDF, as well as including XML namespaces. And on December 6th, 2000, they released RSS 1.0 and renamed RSS back to RDF Site Summary. Well, they didn't get Dave Weiner's sign-off. So not to be left behind, two weeks later, on December 25th, 2000, Merry Christmas, Weiner's Camp has gifted you RSS 0.92 implying there was 0.91 from Netscape, this is the actual next version. Folks, grab your steak knives. We have a fork. Now, in earlier days, Libby or somebody at Netscape would have stepped in. But AOL had bought Netscape in 1998 and had been de-emphasizing my Netscape. They wanted people on AOL.com. And if they didn't care about Netscape... They cared even less about RSS. In fact, they actively did things that could have ended RSS. In April 2001, AOL closed MyNetscape altogether and disbanded the RSS team, going so far as to pull the RSS 0.91 document offline. That document was used by every RSS parser to validate the feeds. Suddenly, all the RSS feeds stopped validating. That means they didn't work. Now, apparently this had little effect on visitors to AOL.com or people dialing into their worldwide wow. So AOL just let them stay broken. With the RSS team gone and AOL uninterested, RSS feeds were looking dead in the water. But the RSS 0.91 validation document was, was just a file. There were copies. Anybody theoretically could host it, as long as everyone else changed their feeds to validate to the new address. So, Dave Weiner stepped up. Weiner's user land stepped in and published a copy of the document on scripting.com so that the feed readers could validate. And that right there is an important point. It won Weiner a lot of goodwill. An uneasy truce followed. 
Whether you are using Netscape's old RSS 0.91, Weiner's new RSS 0.92, or the RDF Development Group's RSS 1.0, they would all validate. By the summer of 2002, things are going okay. Tempers have cooled. Maybe we can solve this. Let's try to merge all three versions into one new version we can all agree on and call it RSS 2.0. Right, everybody? Let's do this. Except they couldn't agree. Weiner still wanted simplicity. That had not changed. RDF folks still wanted RDF and the fun features it would bring. They, they might agree to a simplified version of RDF, but they still wanted it. And to make matters more confusing, Weiner was discussing what should happen in the next version on blogs, with everyone pointing to their own blogs, while the RDF folks were talking about it on the RSS dev mailing list. They weren't even talking about it in the same places. Communication, oddly in a discussion about a communication platform, was the problem. Since neither side was really engaging with each other's arguments, they never came to an agreement. So, Weiner's group (laughs) decided not to wait. On September 16th, 2002, Userland just went ahead and released its own spec and called it RSS 2.0. Bold move! And on top of it, as it came out, Weiner declared RSS 2.0 frozen. We're not taking any more changes. This is it. This is RSS 2.0. This is what you get. Now, that didn't stop discussions over on the RSS dev list, but Weiner's camp got another victory a couple months after that, in November 2002, when the New York Times adopted RSS 2.0. Caused a lot of other publications to follow suit, and it consolidated the position. The next year, in another move fending off the debate, on July 15, 2003, Weiner and Userland assigned ownership of the RSS 2.0 copyright to Harvard's Berkman Center for the Internet and Society. They created a three-person RSS advisory board, one of whom was Weiner, to maintain the spec in cooperation with the Berkman Center, which continued the policy of considering RSS frozen. Mike essentially dropped. Now, there was still a resistance. IBM developer Sam Ruby decided, you know what, if we got this mailing list and we got the bloggers, how about we all come together on a wiki? So set up a wiki for some of the old RDF folks to get together and discuss a new syndication format to address the shortcomings of all the versions of RSS and possibly serve as a replacement for blogger and live journals own protocols. The Atom, A-T-O-M, Atom syndication format was born out of those discussions and was proposed as an internet official protocol standard in December 2005. Atom has a few more capabilities and is more standards compliant than RSS, being an official IETF internet standard, which RSS is not, but in practice they're pretty similar. Atom's last update was October 2007, but it's still widely supported right alongside RSS. And RSS 2.0 kept going. In 2004, its ability to do enclosures, basically point to a file that could be delivered alongside text, led to the rise of podcasts, basically RSS feeds that pointed to MP3 files. In 2005, Safari, Internet Explorer, and Firefox all began incorporating RSS into their browser's functions. In fact, Mozilla's Stephen Hollander had created the web feed icon 
It's that little orange block with a symbol that kind of looks like the Wi-Fi symbol on an angle. It was used in Firefox's implementation of RSS support, obviously, because he worked for Mozilla, but eventually Microsoft and Opera picked it up too. It was also used for Atom feeds. So really, when you think about it, Stephen Hollander did what most people in the story could not, get people interested in providing automated web feeds to agree on something. And in 2006, with Dave Weiner's participation, RSS Advisory Board Chairman Rogers Cadenhead relaunched the body, adding eight new members to the group in order to continue development of RSS. Maybe not so frozen anymore. Peace in the form of an orange square was achieved. After a rather stormy opening decade or so, RSS has settled down into a reliable and, with apologies to Team RDF, simple way of syndicating info. Really simple syndication indeed. Like podcasting, which it provides the underpinnings for, RSS has been declared dead several times, but it just keeps on enduring. I hope you have a little appreciation for that tiny file that delivers you headlines and shows now. In other words, I hope you know a little more about RSS. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Dog and Pony Show Audio. <laughs>